Hello and welcome to the Doc Arena podcast in association with Film Ireland. My name is Ross Whitaker, and every fortnight I want to dig deeply into the motivations of documentary filmmakers. How do they choose their subject material and what approaches and strategies do they employ to fund, craft and distribute their work? In this episode, I speak to Lisa Imordino Vreeland about her film Truman and Tennessee, An Intimate Conversation, which is widely available on demand in Ireland and the UK from April 30th across numerous virtual cinemas, as well as on Dogwoof On Demand. The film intertwines archival interviews with two of the 20th century's most brilliant writers, Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams, as they talk both directly about each other and about parallel aspects of their lives across the many decades of their close friendship. As well as using broadcast interviews with the two writers, the film brings to life their written reflections in voiceover performed by actors Zachary Quinto and Jim Parsons. Here's the trailer for Truman in Tennessee, An Intimate Conversation. Will you welcome the man who's that magnificent writer? A great dramatist. It's Mr. Truman Capote. Mr. Tennessee Williams. The great accomplishment of In Cold Blood is that I never appear once. I wanted to write a book that would read exactly as though it were a novel, except that every word of it would be absolutely true. I think the only thing I've done that is an autobiographical work was The Glass Menagerie. It was the first hit that I had. I really think you've written a masterpiece here. Thank you. Why did I write? We all uh, have a great desire to escape from ourselves. People are always saying, are you happy? I think it's the most idiotic question I know. I mean, nobody is happy. You're very frank about your homosexuality in the memoirs. I was aware, of course, for a long time before it ever surfaced. I just felt things would be easier if I were a girl. I've known Tennessee a long time. Our friendship has had its ups and downs. Here is a man who has devoted his whole life to art and is a genius. Why do writers fall in and out of friendship with each other? Well, jealousy, don't you think? Most people think because somebody is a creative individual, they must be intelligent. It is not so, like Tennessee Williams. Capote's a liar, and everyone knows he is. It really was a sort of intellectual friendship, though people inevitably thought otherwise. Now, I don't care what anybody says about me as long as it isn't true. I'm talking too intimately to you. Let's get on to something more general. (laughs) But if friendship leads to love, must it also, does it normally lead to sex too? No. Friendship lead to sex. <laughs> <laughs> Lisa, thank you so much for joining me. And I think a good place to start really is, is for you to talk a little bit about what what this film is and why you wanted to tackle this particular subject. How, how did you come to it? Oh, hi. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on the show. And, um, you know, it's I've spent the, my kind of short term as a filmmaker, which has really been in the past 10 years, really talking about these great visionaries of the 20th century. And I've had these really great characters from Deanna Vreeland to Peggy Guggenheim to love, to in love Cecil, Cecil Beaton. And then I've done a lot of shorter work um, that there've been a lot of living 
personalities of the 21st century. And I'm always trying to redefine them for a new generation. And I've also had, these characters have had this really, they've had beautiful imagery and there's been to, to be able to display the story. And what was interesting in this time with Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams, I wanted their words to give a rhythm to the film. And, and I wanted to also redefine and place importance on their words. Because I think that a lot of people today, when they, when they look up any of the two writers, they often also see their, their demise, you know, toward the end of their life, that they were just, their life was just completely enshrouded in their addiction. And I, I wanted their, to glorify their words. And, um, and they, and it was such an interesting way to be able to do it because the intention was never to do a biopic. The intention was really for us as the audience members to be, um, to really almost be eavesdropping in on a little intimate conversation between the two of them. And um, as a filmmaker, and since you're a filmmaker, you will understand the freedom that 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 actually gave us in the edit room to be able to make the story go in any direction that we wanted. Yeah, and it's an interesting point that you make because I think we can sometimes be a little bit addicted ourselves to the dark parts of people's stories. And what I liked about this was was that it wasn't focused on that. We all know those elements of the stories in, in the case of these two particular characters. So to see them come alive through the archive and through those conversations was, was very powerful, I thought. Just before we go any further with the film, can I, can I ask you to take a step back and, and tell me, how did you first get into documentary filmmaking and, and what drew you towards it? Well, you know, I think that, you know, I studied art history and I loved art history and it's a huge, it's, you know, it's certainly a passion in my life and I spend lots of time looking at things. I've, very, I've been always really interested in photography and, um, and it, you know, I then worked, but my energy was much more fashion. You know, that kind of fade. You think of New York, fast paced. That was me. <laughs> and um, but it just, it really just happened by accident because I was living in Paris at the time, and I decided to, that we need that there was a new book that needed to be done on Deanna Wheeler. Nothing had been done on her for a while, and um, of course, I'm married to her grandson Alexander, and um, and I and that moment I realized somebody actually told me they said, you know you should make a film and said you probably could get very good access because your name is Imordino Vreeland. And um, of course I did get the access. And as I did the process, went through the process of interviewing all these people, I, I realized how much I enjoyed it. And, um, and what it, for me personally, what filmmaking, it's what it does is that it satisfies my curiosity. And I feel like I'm the perennial student of life. And it gives me this ability to be able to go into these different worlds and learn something. And if it doesn't matter if it's my longer future uh, documentary work or if it's also the shorter work that I do. But it's such, I mean, you know that as well since you make, since you make films that it just gives us this opportunity to be able to learn more in life. And I certainly, I don't have the time to be able to do everything that I want to do. And, I'm, you know, I'm, I, it's clear that I have, I have something about the 20th century. I'm a little stuck in it. And, <laughs> and uh, but there are so many rich characters who have had these lives that really need to have, there needs to be a, a light that's been kind of shines on them in some way. And, because I, I'm, I'm also, I have an 18-year-old, almost a 19-year-old, and I don't want these 
I don't want this generation of people not to be familiar with these great voices and these great visionaries. So it's a very long-winded way to answer your question. No, but what it does is it, it makes them jump off the page, whether it's their own writing or other people writing about them. And the approach that you've taken in this case is is to look at their parallel lives, Truman Capote and, and Tennessee Williams, and their friendship or moments of animosity between them, maybe. But did that in a way require you to look for new material? You know, you weren't doing the biopic. You couldn't just pick up uh, biographies of them and read them and think like, OK, I've got a good sense of the story. You had to find something outside of that, that, that maybe no one had looked for before. How was that in terms of finding things? You know, I, you know, I think that a big part of my work is also archival. And, um, and I really, th this is my, I, I must have been a librarian in a past life or, you know, or some kind of student of some sort, a, a more serious student than I was actually in real life. And because I didn't take my university year serious enough because I really love doing the research. And I actually, I do the research, I do all the reading myself because I know that there are a lot of filmmakers who have a whole team of people and I really enjoy it because it's an important process because I, I read the physical books, I underline, and then I type it in to the computer. And so there's these different levels of being able to absorb the material because often the material unfolds, the whole story unfolds. And, you know, there are many filmmakers who write these very impressive treatments and the film can come alive and the story comes alive immediately. I don't have that ability to do that. I really don't. I need to do the research and then talk over with you know a team that I've been working with. I've been working with the same people, which is so nice for all these years. But you know, in Truman and, and Tennessee's case, there are lots of different biographies. There are archives with papers in them, and you just you know I I did a very wide spectrum of going through all of this research and then putting to, grouping it together. I mean, almost creating a paper cut of the material in the computer and being able to, you know, like both of them speaking about their addiction, about their depression, about their um, uh, childhood, um, about their uh, desire and necessity to write from a young age. And so being able to pick all of these things and find these quotes that were in different books, okay, and in different letters, it, that really created the conversation. But of course, we were also very fortunate, Ross, that we had this remarkable David Frost interview. Yes, because in the film, he does two parallel interviews that um, in the same setting, with a lot of the same kind of tone and approach that allow you to kind of almost intercut them, you, you know, which, which is wonderful. And you see the parallels between them, but also you see where they intersect. Were you when you say you were sort of structuring within your paper edit those parallels, you were obviously also looking for moments where they would refer to each other or talk about each other. When you went into this, did you know how much of that there might be or, or was it constantly, you know, you discover a new piece and you go, oh, oh thank goodness, I found another one. No, I, I knew that there were certain definitely certain moments. And um, and that was, of course, important. And And we had, I mean, you know, it would have been, I think we had enough. We'd certainly had enough. I mean, it would have been great if we had another Ischia moment that, you know, they were off on another trip. I mean, we did have that moment that Capote um, invited Tennessee to Portofino, but then, you know, he was just like, well, you have the, the whole story about the dog. And I, and I love the fact that they both had bulldogs. And, uh, but, you know, that was, 
I discovered maybe one or two extras. And the most important letter that I did discover toward the end was only because, you know, I, I'm always, you know, with literary words, I mean, I'm not going to pretend that I am a scholar in any way. And all of a sudden, a, I was introduced to a Tennessee Williams expert and scholar, and his name is Thomas Keith. And that just, you know, you I was very welcoming, but at the same time, I was like, oh my gosh, this could be a very frightening moment. And I sent him the cut of the film and we were pretty much at a, at a final cut and final narrative cut. And he watched it and I was, I was just, he, because he could have just canned the whole thing and said, no, this is wrong. Da, da, da. And he just really embraced it and loved it. But then he said, you know, I have a letter that Tennessee Williams wrote to Truman Capote in 1978. And that was just absolutely fantastic. And it was, and it was such an important letter. First of all, we we included some of that in the ending of the film, which was really important. But it also it also showed the differences in their personalities. It was so clear because Tennessee was a really caring person, and he thought, you know, he he his life wasn't he, he was not interested in being a celebrity. And this is what was so great about these two different personalities. And he was concerned about Truman. And, you know, he got over his anger um, about how Truman wrote about him in, in Unspoiled Monsters. And he just, you know, he just was thinking about, about Truman, about him, about him taking care of himself. And so we, I was very lucky with that, that that just kind of popped up toward the end. Yeah. And when you see the two of them together and you, and you learn about their childhoods and so on, you start to kind of think about how they are shaped by them. Um, and even though they're very different personalities, they both obviously are these incredible creative forces. Did you reflect on that in making it, seeing that they succeeded kind of in spite of or because of their childhood? Do you have any reflections on that? Well, you know, I think childhood plays such an important life in all of our, in, in all of our lives. And I think it's always really clear when somebody comes from that when somebody has that really solid base and because it just it just kind of pushes you out in the world in this kind of positive way with you, you already have something inside of you and and I think that you know how can you imagine being locked in hotel rooms as, as Truman was as a, as a young child and um, and Tennessee really not having the support from the father but also from a mother who was really much much more concerned with social social things and just things that didn't matter to him and and Tennessee was very introspective from a very from a young age and you could see that in his reflections in his diaries and in all of his journals and um and I think that they went out in the world in the best way that they could and you know it was clear that Tennessee also suffered from depression at a very young age. And there must have been, there's, there was definitely depression in the family. I mean, it was shocking. I, I did not know about his sister, Rose. And, you know, when you found out that she had, what, 65 electroshocks, you know, therapies, I mean, you can't even believe that somebody, did, that doctors did that, allowed that to happen. I mean, it's just shocking. Both of them, you just think it's amazing what they went on to achieve considering all of those experiences. In the film, you have amazing archive of both of them speaking. And, and as you mentioned, the David Frost interviews are incredible. But you also chose to use, you know, I suppose elements of things that they had said and bring them to life with actors. And, and you had Jim Parsons and Zachary Quinto, which is like it must have been a dream <laughs> to work with actors at that level. It, it, was it difficult to get them on board and, and to direct them? and you know, 
I would wonder, you know, if I was in that situation, I'd be thinking, well, can I tell Zachary Quinto to, to lay off a bit here or, <laughs> you know, what am I? So how is that experience from a documentary point of view? You know, well, it's interesting because, you know, I don't it's it, this is now I've done this several times now. And, you know, we worked with a Rupert Everett and Love Cecil. And um, and then I did something a short with Timothy Chalmay. Um, and so I've been I've been starting to work with actors. And I and I have to say that. Everybody's so gracious. I mean, both Zach and Jim were incredible. And Zach was you know, he's incredibly passionate about Tennessee Williams. He's an expert. I mean, he really is an expert. And, you know, he has all of his books um, and his and he can quote directly parts of plays. He's performed it. And he really got he got Jim involved um, and they were really passionate about it. They thought really carefully on what their performances should be. And it was just it was very, very easy. I mean, they're so nice. I mean, it, it is there was it was nothing. I always go to something, an experience like this, because for me, it's, it's not that I've worked that much with actors before, but I just go with my gut instinct on this. But it's interesting because when you're in the when you're in the room and of course we were in, in covid, um, you know, covid uh, recording studios, everything had been controlled and then, you know, double checked. And, um, and we, we both knew when he got it and it was a real back and forth. And he's like, you know, I, he goes, I think I should do it again. And both, both of them would say at the same time, no, let's do this one again. And then I'll say, okay, well, why don't you do it this way? Um, but it was, it, it was a really lovely experience and it was, and they really wanted to give a lot to it. Do I feel that the, unfortunately the pandemic, I may not have gotten them if it wasn't a pandemic. Um, they were my dream team, but the fact is they did have some time on their hands and um, and they were willing to devote it to the project, which is it's incredibly generous of them. So, suddenly I start thinking about like what they would cost, but I'm not going to ask you, uh, you know, what their fees are, but it, it actually does bring me to another question that I meant to ask you, which is you've done a number of projects in this space in terms of 20th century visionaries. How do you find the response to those and, and where do you go looking for uh, support in terms of, of, of funding these films? It's hard. It's a really, really hard. Um, it's a good question and it's a question that continues to frustrate me. And, um, you know, I these are my passion projects. And so I just try to make it happen in a way. And I don't always get support. Sometimes I have producers who are or executive producers who bring in money. I've had a wonderful person, um, Mark Lee, who's been involved in three of my films. But I, I don't, you know, I work, I I work on commercial projects, but really interesting commercial projects that then I end up using a lot of my funds from that to make the, my passion projects. But I never try to pre-sell it, or I, I really feel like I just want to make the film that I want to make and and go out there but it's you know you can really I work with a very small team and even when I'm shooting you know it was it was really when we shot in Ischia it was very funny because Men in Black one of the I don't know what maybe Men in Black two or three I, I don't even know was shooting at the same time and they had and I don't know if you've been to Ischia but the roads are very small I mean it's, it's kind of uh, it, it's it's frightening how small they are but there were these huge location trucks and we had uh, the location scout from My Brilliant Friend working with us. And it was literally just the DP, Shane, Mark, and myself. And a Bolex and, a, and lots of film. 
you can imagine what the men in black <laughs> location crew was like. I mean, and all this to say that I don't like, I, I like to have the intimacy of a, of a crew that is really small, that we're feeling it. I mean, that, that this becomes an experience for all of us. And as, as I think of my next film and how we're shooting, I'm, I know exactly what we're going to do. And it's probably only going to be Shane, Ziegler, and myself in Europe shooting. And I just, I told him, I said, oh, it's probably going to be October. Let's just block 10 days, the two of us, and we're going to travel and, and shoot it. Um, and it's, so there, there are a lot of different ways, but I, you know, I've kind of figured out how to keep the cost down. And of course, I never have a fee, but I, I, these stories for me are so important to tell. And you know, at this point, I have a little kind of, I'm, I have a little box set, okay, of stories, and I'm going to continue because I just think it's, it's fascinating. And, you know, there is there is an audience. It's not, you know, it's not a huge audience. But there are people who are interested because I really, you know, I not only want to redefine these incredible personalities for this a younger generation, but I also, for people who are really passionate on these subjects, I want to reveal something to them that they've never known. And and I, I like, I'm very satisfied when all of a sudden I, I get a phone call and they're like, oh, I never knew that. You know, somebody's telling me this story and I said, where did you find this? And so I, you know, I, I like being able to satisfy everybody if I can. It, it feels like the kind of film that it would be lovely to share with an audience in a theatre and that you would meet all sorts of interesting people that would come to such a film. Mm. How have you found the experience of of re sort of releasing a film or, or doing festivals to a certain extent during this last year? Well, it's been I have to say, because I am not at all a part of the film business in any way in L.A. or in New York. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of the film festival circuit. And I mean, I've had this this film got into Telluride and it was my fourth film in Telluride. And it's I mean, that that in itself is such a lovely experience because it's such an intimate group of of um, people who go and watch it. But it's, it is, I love the moment with that audience because there are a lot of, I mean, this is a great film to be able to discuss with an audience in person. And there's going to be somebody telling you something about this or that. And, and it's funny because some, I've been getting these emails from people saying, oh, you, a lot of people, like, apparently Tennessee Williams went to a lot of his plays, to a lot of the performances of, of his plays on Broadway. And I've heard all these stories of him being in the performances and like sitting with this person or sitting with that or maybe not being 100%. Maybe he had a little bit too much to drink. And um, But no, it, it, it was sad to do it this way because I'm not, I'm not a techie person. And um, and I, I, I like that back and forth, but it's also, it's a process. It's a, it's a critical process for me because I, I like to listen to what people say and I, I don't want only accolades. I also want somebody to challenge me and, um, on, on something important, you know, because I, sometimes, you know, somebody brings up, well, you know, that shoe or this, you know, talking about something and I'm like, oh, well, you know, I don't really, that that's, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm really open to people's opinions. And I, and I think, you know, also we weren't even are, are in, within my team. Um, I typically, cause Bernadine Kolish has edited this film. She had edited Peggy and she edited also beaten. And we typically have very small screens to show instead of having, and we get notes. 
and it's always a mixed kind of bag of people. You can have maybe some people from museums and maybe some art directors, a couple of fashion people, a literary person. And in fact, we were having a screening, but it was the Thursday, I think, I don't know, it was March 12th or 13th. And and it was, you could tell that there was right before when everything broke in New York and I literally had to cancel it. That Thursday night, we closed the office down and, um, and we, and we just all left. And so we, we didn't even have those screenings this time. And it was such an important, it's a very important process because we're in the room and we take notes. I mean, it's so important. You know how important it is to listen to people's notes, because especially if you have three people in the room telling you the same thing about a certain moment in the film, you know, you have to change it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so you're talking about test screenings and yes. Yeah. So it, it is, I think it's a very valuable process, but it's interesting because it, it seems that some filmmakers like them and some filmmakers don't. So it's, it's interesting to hear that, that you see that as a vital part of what you do. I do. I think it's, I think it's important because, you know, I just have, I'm one part of the team. Me, that that's the thing. I mean, it it makes the movie stems from my idea, but you know, I have an editor, I have a producer, I have you know, assistant editor, I have a composer, I have a, a a director, you know, cinematographer, and these are all important elements, and they all bring something to it. And then when you have an you know, audiences say things, but I I always. I finish each film and I have a takeaway of, okay, I could have done this better. I could have done that. Or there's always a process of learning something from each film because I, I still have a lot to learn in this metier. I really enjoyed the aesthetic of the film. There's a combination of different elements. So obviously there's the archive, like the interviews on David Frost and, and elsewhere that you present quite cleanly and as it was and so on for the most part. And then there's a little bit more of a kind of dreamlike layered type of material that you use. And I loved that. I thought it had great emotional resonance with the words. Can you talk to me a little bit about how you approach that? Because to my eye, it's a mixture of archive. You mentioned your DOP and the Bolex. So obviously some beautiful stuff shot on, on film as you go around. How do you approach that? both in terms of deciding what to film and how it's going to work then later with the archive? From the beginning, I knew that the words of these writers were going to be kind of, were going to set a certain tone in the film. And I knew that there was this, that just wanted this footage, this kind of dreaming, this whole feeling of layers in a film and just kind of going in and out of this, their worlds. And um, so I, I was very, very precise on that. But what's interesting is that then when you kind of when you go off and you go on a trip, you then start to you know you see new things kind of pop up, new different locations pop up, and um, you know I always since I love photography so much, you know I wanted to create these layers with with footage and photography and make it come alive. So making the words come alive, and I was definitely very influenced by. I mean, I don't. I'm sure you loved this film. I am not your Negro, and um, by Raoul Peck. I mean, I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And um, and you know these things. You know, at a, at a certain point while we were editing, I, we were we were thinking we're like, well, you know what, we need we need a little bit more abstract New York. We need New York. And, um, and so we went out, it was a January, it was really cold and we went out to Times Square and, um, we had this really beautiful 
archival um, photography by a, a photographer by the name of David Atty. And uh, I think we used about 30 of his photographs in the film and they've never been seen because they were actually from these little slides that I, his, his son just opened up the archive to me and I, I literally went through a box, a, a wall of probably 300 boxes of slides and um, and they're all these kind of wonderful distorted images because he had worked with the art director, Alexei Brodovich, and it's just beautiful, beautiful work. So we wanted to recreate that kind of feeling with the Bolex. But also, if you think about it, Times Square has completely changed. And it's now the these LED kind of big advertisements. So just the feeling and texture of it change. But, you know, we... It's like it's very precise and there's a sensibility with the way that Shane Ziegler works that is um, he just he knows exactly. And, if, and I'm always so close to him and probably too close <laughs> and as I look over his shoulder, especially when it's with a Bolex, because you can't you don't have a, a monitor that you're looking at. Um, but he knows exactly what I want. He really, really does. And we just have a conversation and he goes out and it's just, and he has this, not only creativity, but there's also a femininity to it. And I, I do feel like the film looks like it was made by a woman. There's a feminine aspect to the way it, it flows. And, um, and the composer did it just, it's an Italian composer. I thought he just did such a brilliant job and he was really, we were very close in the whole process. Uh, while we were editing, we were sending, and it, it was just a remarkable um, relationship that we have. Because you you said that you had a paper edit from fairly early on in the process, I suppose, or, or you build that as, as your beginning, does that really inform those shoots that you don't go out and shoot a ton of material and realize, oh, I've, I've missed, I've missed this section, or, you know, I need more for that. Did all of that kind of planning come out of that initial paper edit that you had? Well, you know, I had so I had a very abstract paper edit because it doesn't, you know, really the the film unfolds in the edit room. Okay, it's a real conversation and um, that I have with Bernadine and um, and we really once we decided that the launching pad was the David Frost interview it was really kind of easy to go off on all these different tangents, um, but we don't mind if we have extra visual material. I mean, we knew it was ambiance. We really knew. I mean, because we had built up already the archive of all the other visuals that we wanted, because we also use this, this, uh, I've been wanting to use this, um, a home movie archive based out of Bologna in Italy that just, it's literally people's old home movies and, um, and, and they're really odd. Um, but you just find these things in there sometimes. And, um, and so I just knew that we were going to use that. And, and so I always end up shooting, we end up shooting much more, but we use it. And we have this kind of wonderful, we're building up this nice big archive within all of our hard drives of beautiful footage that we create ourselves because we continue to go back to it for something. And um, so I'm not sure I answered your question directly, but we just wanted ambiance. And so we had New York. We wanted Europe because having Europe in my films is always important because that's part of my life. And um, we didn't shoot. We actually didn't shoot Rome. Um, we didn't need to really shoot. I think we had shot it on some other projects. So we may have had some leftover. Um, but then we also had um, we had all the films as well, which were another wonderful part of the film was being able to use all these 
clips. How did that work? You know, when you mentioned using movie clips, you mean footage from adaptations, dramatic adaptations of their work. I think the process in the States is a little bit different than it is here in, in, in terms of accessing that footage and, and where you get it and, and maybe how much you pay for it. What was the process for you in securing that footage and, and how did you go about it? You know, we work with, um, we use fair use here and we work with a very, like the, really the best fair use lawyer who really came up with a lot of, of the laws in the US. And, um, but this does work. I mean, we are covered worldwide and you know you really have to we use the scenes that we think are appropriate and that really describe what we're talking about in the film and that really just if if we are if we're what we're putting right before the clip really supports what the clip is we're 100 percent clear and i think it's actually quite important to show some of these works because first of all there are a lot of people who don't even know these films and, and what's nice is that people are going to be curious and they're going to want to go see the film itself. But, you know, we love to use movie clips when we can. And, um, and I think that they give this texture because what's, what's nice is that you want to give a real texture of, this, of the life of these writers. And I do feel that the texture comes out very clearly through everything, through all the combination. I mean, there's sometimes we have four or five layers going on. And, you know, it's like, you know, and there, there may be some people who really like that. And some people that's that they're like, wait a second, what should I be looking at? What layer should I be looking at? <laughs> I love it, actually. I think it's, it's, oh, it's re really um, it's a it's a beautiful aesthetic. One of the other things I'd like to touch on is, you know, you talk about this film introducing these characters to a new generation. And one thing that's changed a lot of in, in the intervening period, I suppose, is, is attitudes towards homosexuality. Both of these authors were gay and you get a sense of the impact of that on their lives. Was that something that was kind of at the forefront of your mind in, a, in addressing their lives? No, it certainly was. I think their homosexuality was important and, um, and the fact that they were open about it because they didn't shy away from it. And, um, and I think that Another topic that we really did cover was addiction, which I thought was important. But going back to the homosexuality for, um, you know, what I think was really important with, with Tennessee was that, you know, his emotions were out there. I mean, you know, he really, the fact that his inner self was being exposed to the world constantly was probably his most important uh, contribution. Um, because on the stage, what you, you know, became talking about all these things that were kept inside he have become really the vernacular of theater and of a lot of um of, of cultural um contributions worldwide but you know he was very open about it his parents his father obviously as we said in the film was not accepting of his homosexuality but he did he just lived his life i mean you know there was there was a group of these creative um literary people who were gay and it was a small group of people they kind of bounced between New York and Europe and um, and it was a tight group but none of them were really scared of being who they were and I think Truman was very very open about it um, Tennessee was also very promiscuous and he did not shy away from it and, you know in his journals he spoke about cruising and um, I mean I think we could honestly probably say he was a sex addict as well um, and I think that this was something that they just were 
you know, they wore their emotions on their sleeves, especially Tennessee. And it was also important in casting this that Jim and Zach were also gay. I mean, it was kind of, it was perfect that, because they also understood the sensitivity that both of these men had. And um, so it, it's, it, it all felt very right. But, you know, and I also, going back to the idea of addiction, I think it was really important to talk about addiction that they both suffered from. And, um, and that's what they both succumbed to ultimately. How do you find the next subject that you're going to move on to? You know, you can draw, I think, something of a line through your work. Where does the line take you next? No, I mean, I, I think you are right. You, I can. There's always, you know, they all knew each other. There was a relationship between all of these characters so far. And, um, and I think that I really wanted to do something with the written word. And I've definitely, I feel like I've done it. But I still feel like I want to do more with the written word. And um, I'm going to enter the world of Gertrude Stein. I think she will be fascinating. And it's going to have its challenges because... Uh, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of moving image of her at all, but I'm excited about that challenge because the challenge, it's, it's good to be challenged. Um, and her words are also less dreamy, uh, <laughs> there's without a doubt, but she's a woman and I love the mix of the world of the world of art and literature in this case. And I think it's, it's going to be fun, but they, you know, they pop up. It's not like they're a lot that pop up in my head um, because they have to, they have to make sense. They have to have all of the, you know, the, the character, because they also have to have live this life that is rich with, with so many different things. And I think Gertrude does enter um, that's very, very much so with Alice B. Toglas and her brother. The final question I'm going to ask you is, is one that I'm always interested to hear myself, which is, is there any, Thing you would tell maybe your younger self or, or an emerging filmmaker that you think is an important thing to, to kind of keep in mind as as you go through your career gosh i don't even know if i could tell a, a young filmmaker just give them any advice um but you know i think it's i think you just have to be so pa- you have to be patient on so many different levels because it's patience of being able to kind of tackle a subject learn figuring out how to do it there's so many different things can, that could stop a film in the middle of process. It could, I mean, the, the, the most typical one that comes up, of course, is financial. It's money that stops it most often. But I think that if you believe in, you believe in your subject matter, you just keep pursuing it and in whatever way. And, um, and that's the only reason why these, all these films have been able to be made is because I've just, just I, don't, I'm, I don't stop. So I think that that if that is any advice, I'm not sure it's 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 not it's not new advice. That is for sure. But um, I hope that could be helpful. Well, I'm sure it will be. So uh, the film will be available to watch this week. I, I'm sure lots of people will enjoy it. So thanks, Lisa. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Lisa for taking part in the interview. Her film Truman in Tennessee, an intimate conversation is widely available on video on demand from April 30th, as well as on Dogwoof on demand. Thanks to Stephen Galvin and Phil Marland for supporting the podcast and to film composer Michael Fleming for kindly allowing me to steal his music. You can find more of it at michaelflemingmusic.com. And thanks to you for listening.